Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Courier for Thursday, March 2nd. I am your narrator, Peter Welch, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Okay, let's take a look at the uh, major headlines here in the paper uh, today. State's cancer rate second and highest. Report, Iowa is only state where cancer rates are increasing. Fifty years after Iowa began collecting and analyzing data on residents diagnosed with cancer through its Iowa Cancer Registry, statistics revealed that Iowa has the second highest cancer incident rate in the nation and is the only state with a rising rate of cancer. We've really been trying to dig into that because it just seems so unbelievable that here in Iowa, we would have the second highest rate of new cancer cases around the country. University of Iowa Associate Professor of Epidemiology, Mary Charlton, who directs the Iowa Cancer Registry, told reporters on Tuesday, Kentucky has the highest cancer rate lining up with its high smoking rate, Charlton said. We don't have as high a smoking rate. We don't have as high a lung cancer rate, she said. But what we do have is a relatively high rate of just about every major cancer type across the board. In sharing details of the UI-based registry 2023, cancer in Iowa report Charlton noted analysts predict 20,800 new cancer cases will be diagnosed this year, up 800 from last year, and double the number of cases recorded 50 years ago at the registry's outset in 1973. Given early detection and treatment advancements, the registry estimates that 6,200 Iowans will die from cancer this year, 100 fewer than 2022, and on par with 50 years ago. So the same number of deaths double the rate of cases, Charlton said. So the bad news is, yes, we are high in cancer, but the good news is people aren't dying from it nearly as much as they used to, and we're, keep, and we're keeping that number of deaths stable. No smoking gun. The top cancers diagnosed for 2023 will continue to be breast, accounting for 14% of the total, followed by prostate and lung, each accounting for 13%, colon and rectum, which accounts for 8%, and skin melanoma accounting for 6%, according to the report. Iowa's top cancer killers for 2023 will be lung, accounting for 23% colon, rectum, and pancreas, each at 8%, and breast cancer at 7%. As the Iowa Cancer Registry celebrates its 50th anniversary, The 2023 report notes that the spike in cases is tied in part to Iowa's aging population as advancing age is the leading risk factor for cancer. In fact, persons over age 65 account for almost 60% of the newly diagnosed cancers and 75% of all cancer deaths during the last five years, 2015 to 2019, according to the report. The rising cases also ties to Iowa's largest population, growing from 2.9 million in 1973 to 3.2 this year, and the improvement and corresponding increase in cancer detection among Iowans. But it seems like a mountain of pebbles, Charlton said. 
There's not just one silver bullet that explains why we're so high, but we've been trending this way for a long time in our ranks, so it's really time to turn it around. Iowa is among nine states included in the original surveillance, epidemiology, and end results program spawned from the National Cancer Act of 1971, while the other original registries, such as in Connecticut, New Mexico, and the metropolitan areas of Detroit, San Francisco, Oakland, and Atlanta, have seen incident rates go down since the early 1990s. Iowa's have been trending up since that time. With cancer registries now in 50 states, Iowa tops most in incidents of at least eight types of cancer, ranking first nationally in oral pharynx cancer diagnosis, second in leukemia, fifth in melanoma, and sixth in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Increasing awareness of risk factors can help Iowans lower their risk for cancer and inform policies, programs, and initiatives according to the report identifying obesity, diet, physical activity, alcohol, and tobacco use among risk factors. To that point, the report notes that Iowans have a higher body mass index than the national average, engage in less physical activity than the rest of the country, do more binge drinking and smoking more. There's no smoking gun, Charlton said. I think it's just a lot of things collectively that we need to do as a population. So as you can see from this report, you know, a, a good, a good healthy habits are good, eating the right kinds of foods and exercising. And, uh, uh, moderate drinking and trying not to smoke or or at least uh, keep that to a moderate rate. All those things can add up. All right, let's see what else is going on here. Fewer students enrolled at HCC. Trustees approved 3.6% tuition increase for fall. In Waterloo, Hawkeye Community College saw a 3.8% decline in its spring enrollment from the previous academic year. However, Vice President of Student Affairs, Nina Grant told the Board of Trustees Tuesday that there's a plan to address what's become a widespread trend for many community colleges. The, new, uh, the news rather came on the same night that the trustees approved a tuition hike. Enrollment checked in at 4,607 students. We are down in enrollment with other community colleges in the state of Iowa, said Grant. If you look nationally, Community colleges across the nation are down much more significantly than we are percentage-wise. However, in the state of Iowa, there's been kind of a mixture. She attributed the drop to the competition for students with other higher education institutions as well as the draw to join the workforce. Of course, our next-door neighbor right up the road at the University of Northern Iowa has put a lot of effort into that in terms of trying to bring in more students, which creates a greater, comp greater competition, Grant goes on to say. To fight the trend, she said that the col college is placing an emphasis on success and retention. One way is eliminating barriers like food insecurity that may lead students to drop out. She's also optimistic that Hawkeye's new director of admissions will bring additional ideas to the forefront and that a relationship between the college and career transition counselor at the Waterloo Career Center will bring positive results. That counselor would help high school students with the college 
application process, including the federal student aid application known as the FAFSA. Hawkeye introduced a new initiative as well. We've started a new kind of program with our admitted student days, said Grant. We've also had Hawkeye visit days where we've had prospective students and their families come and visit campus. This, however, is a population of students that has gone through the application process and has been admitted. Campus ambassadors would express excitement that they're coming to visit, answer questions, and get them connected with the right people. Right now, though, Dan Gillen, VP of Administration and Finance, acknowledged that when enrollment drops, it has a significant impact. That's because tuition makes up 46% of the college's general fund operating revenues. Jay Nardini, board president, said originally, when community colleges were founded, tuition was supposed to be split evenly between state and local property taxes at 33.33% each. The trustees approved increases in the tuition and activity fee per credit hour for 23-24. Combined, it will go from $210 to $217.50 for in-state students. Even so, trustees pointed out that the tuition increase of 3.6% doesn't even make up for the inflation problem. In the meantime, the college is hoping to finalize its budget next month after Governor Kim Reynolds signed a bill that clarifies the residential rollback percentage or the uh, proportion of property values that is taxable as 54.6%, not 56.5%. Originally, the board expected to approve the budget Tuesday, but the deadline to do that has been pushed back because of the state's error on the rollback. All right, let's see what else is going on here. Let's go over to Cedar Falls now. Ag producers fill UNI Dome. Technology equipment on display at annual Hawkeye Farm Show. In Cedar Falls, farmers gathered under one roof this week to learn about the newest farm technology. The, 30, the 36th annual Hawkeye Farm Show has been taking place since Tuesday and will continue Thursday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the UNI Dome. Along with hundreds of ex exhibitor, exhibitors, rather, visitors are able to attend seminars presented by Iowa State Extension Services that focus on the latest challenges facing farmers for the upcoming planting season. One newer technology being shown off at the convention is crop dusting drones. The drones are an alternative to traditional crop dusting planes. Sam Rockwell from Mercosa Ag of Grinnell said that the drones are operated remotely and use a GPS system similar to modern tractors to com uh, complete a fully automated flight. Farmers see the benefit of the technology and they're very easy to run, Rockwell said. The price of the drones is a small fraction of what crop duster planes cost. One drone featured at the show was priced at $38,400, while the planes used for crop dusting cost at least $500,000. The drones can hold up to 10 gallons of pesticides, covering 4.5 acres, and, and can complete 40 to 50 acres in an hour. 
When the usage of drones started up in 2019, Rockwell said that they only covered six acres an hour. If the drone stops mid-coverage, it knows exactly where to pick up the job. It can also avoid obstacles and follow the contour of the field. He said drones really became popular in 2021 and 2022. There have been four iterations of the drone in the past four years. Another popular piece of equipment for farmer is skid loaders. Steve Swartzrock of Swartzrock Implement Company in Charles City said that the dealer offers the biggest skid loader that is better than anything else on the market. The, mach- the machine itself weighs over 16,000 pounds and can lift up to 2,500 pounds. Swartzer Rock also featured a utility tractor. He said that most of the technology for skid loaders and tractors has remained the same throughout the years. One thing that has changed, though, is that with some utility tractors, the exhaust comes out cleaner than it's going in, he said. He also mentioned issues of carbon pipelines. Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Carbon Express Navigator CO2 Ventures Heartland Greenway would pass through Floyd County. Summit would stretch 680 miles in northern western and central Iowa, while Navigator would go from the northwest to southwest corner of the state, uh, totaling about 900 miles. The projects would capture carbon dioxide emitted by ethanol plants and send it to reservoirs underground in North Dakota and Illinois, all while taking advantage of federal tax credits and opening ethanol to a new to, to new markets. Swartzerock said that the carbon pipeline would be good for ethanol. Still, he wouldn't want it my in my backyard. He expressed fear of a pipeline's rupturing and causing injuries or deaths. Navigator's proposed pipeline would also run through Bremer County. Its Board of Supervisors unanimously passed new pipeline zoning rules this week. All right, let's see. Des Moines. Trump hints at Iowa visit on talk show. Former president says he will visit very soon in latest campaign. Donald Trump is planning to visit Iowa in mid-March, a first foray to the leadoff caucus state since announcing his 2024 White House campaign. The former president hinted at an Iowa trip very soon in a radio interview with Des Moines talk show host Simon Conway on Tuesday. A Trump aide confirmed Wednesday that plans were underway for an upcoming appearance, but declined to provide details about the location or the date beyond the middle of this month. The aide spoken the aide spoken on condition of anonymity to discuss plans that have not been publicly announced as of yet. We've been planning something very soon, Trump told Conway on WHO Radio, and then we'll be coming back at least a couple of times before the election. Trump has been notably absent in Iowa, where Republican candidate Nikki Haley, his former U.N. ambassador, and potential rivals Mike Pence, the former VP, and Senate and Senate Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, have visited after a slow start to campaigning in the state. Some Iowa Republican activists, including Gloria Mazza, chairwoman of the Polk County Republicans, representing Iowa's most populous county, have noted that Trump has stayed away so far. 
Trump traveled in January to New Hampshire, scheduled to host the first Republican presidential primary next year in South Carolina, the South's first primary. Okay, let's turn uh, now to another section of the uh, paper. This is the Cedar Valley area uh, of the paper. Survey reveals shopper interests. Bookstore tops list from Main Street, Cedar Falls interest. In Cedar Falls, a bookstore is the business of choice that respondents uh, to a recent consumer survey want to see pop up in downtown. Out of the approximately 700 participants, 48% of the selected that type of establishment from 12 available options. That was followed by women's clothing, 38.8%. Grocery store, 38.2%. Cards and gifts, 29.7%. Vintage repurposed goods, 26.8%. General variety store, 26.4%. Art crafts variety store, 26.4%. Art craft hobbies, 25.4% and sporting goods outdoors at 22.3%. The survey came as one piece of a larger market study and a strategies report recently completed over about a nine-month, excuse me, I should say recently completed over about a nine-month period by Cedar Falls Community Main Street and Main Street, Iowa, the first since 2016. It's a planning document for our organization and gives us a direction for moving forward, said Kim Baer, Community Main Street Executive Director. In this instance, someone comes to us wanting to start a bookstore, and we have the results that say, yes, we'd love to have one. I feel like the conversations we had throughout the process were especially critical to figuring out how we move forward. Who does Community Main Street want to be when we're all grown up, she added. A bookstore coming in as a, as a high as it did was unexpected for Bear. We have a huge library within the district boundaries, so it was a surprise to see it at, an, at being number one, she said. The large shock, or larger shock, was women's clothing stores coming in at second, although one of the other surveys indicated that women's clothing as the product of 61.3% of the respondents said that they buy in other cities or online. It was a surprise because we have a good amount of these in downtown, but maybe lack of a niche, higher end and women's boutiques or other missing piece of the puzzle, Bear said. Grocery store, the third highest selection, is on people's minds as the Rooted Carrot Co-op continues to search for a location near the center of town. Another survey asked about the type of eating or drinking establishment that would draw a person to downtown more often. Breakfast brunch was the top choice at 53.6%, and the bakery came in at second at 45.9%. Bambino's at 401 Main Street is nearing a grand opening, so people may get their wish in that regard. Along with the surveys, which were administered predominantly online and through social media over a couple weeks in June, the report lent insight into the downtown makeup and market, as well as strategies and initiatives to bring about improvements to downtown. Admittedly, nothing groundbreaking came as a result of the studies at Bear. 
but it reinforced previous beliefs, such as that downtown stakeholders would like to see a parking structure constructed in the area. Among the initiatives which were discussed heavily by the Community Main Street Board last month was clarifying the branding and clearing up the confusion of what's Community Main Street, the organizations versus the downtown districts, uh, the place. Goals also related to everything from improving public restrooms availability and bringing about more murals for photo opportunities to more QR codes for tourists and a new community Main Street website. The completion of this market study is not an end, but rather another milestone in the evolution of the community's downtown enhancement initiative. While the process has served to help identify today's priorities, challenges, and emerging opportunities, it cannot and does not pretend to anticipate next year's challenge or exciting and anticipated opportunities on the horizon, said the study in conclusion. All right, what else is going on here? Gilbertville. Gilbertville decides on $1.25 million bond issue. Funding will go towards a new fire and police facility. Voters on Tuesday will determine if bonds will be issued for a new municipal emergency service building at the north edge of the city. The measure, if passed, would allow Gilbertville to issue a $1.25 million in general obligation bonds to help fund the project. At least 60% of the voters must approve of the bond issue for it to pass. The bonds would be repaid with property tax proceeds over 10 years at a rate of $3.09 per $1,000 of taxable income value. For the owner of a home assessed at $100,000, that rate would increase property taxes by about $175 per year. For commercial property, valued at $250,000, the annual tax impact would be about $695. According to Gilbertville Fire and Rescue Chief Kurt Bovey, the department has outgrown the current station at 1406 4th Street. Our trucks obviously are not getting any smaller, and so we've been having to revamp the station or revamp the truck every time we purchase a different vehicle. Bobby said. So we're in a need of a little larger facility uh, for our trucks, and then we'll incorporate the police department and w- with the fire in one public safety building. According to Gilbertville Mayor Mark Thome, the city has been discussing a new emergency services building for at least 10 years. The city council voted unanimously in November to put it on the ballot. Along with the bond funding, the city is receiving $500,000 in federal funding for the project that was allotted in January as part of an ominous appropriations bill. Further fundraising is needed to close the gap for construction of the building, which is expected to cost more than $2.8 million. The old facility has been around for well over 50 years, and we've outgrown the building, Thome said. The equipment that we purchase has to be custom-made because the building doesn't fit the equipment. The planned 12,400-square-foot building will open up options for new vehicles, including rescue boats, as Gilbertville Fire and Rescue currently relies on boats from surrounding communities' fire departments. The facility will also mean housing for the department's trailer, which Bobby keeps at his home at present. 
Additionally, it will become the new home of the police department, which has also outgrown the current station at 419 14th Avenue. According to Thome, an open house was held at the current station in January that showcased the need for the new center. Public support, he said, appears very strong. People in Gilbertville, if there's a need, the community is generally very supportive of projects, Thome said. Construction for the emergency services building would begin in the fall and be completed in 2024. All right, let's see. Okay, let's go to Waterloo here. Arrest made on stolen vehicle with baby inside. A registered sex offender has been arrested for allegedly stealing a car with a baby inside over the weekend. Waterloo police charged Roy Alfred Halverson, age 43, with a second-degree theft and child neglect. He was arrested Wednesday and bond was set at $75,000. He was also arrested on drug offenses when officers found meth, police said. According to police, the mother left her five-month-old daughter in the back seat of a Lincoln M- MKX when she stopped at Dollar General at 820 West 5th Street around 6.30 p.m. on Sunday. The vehicle was unlocked and the engine was running, police said. When she returned... The vehicle and the child were gone. About an hour later, around 7.45 p.m., residents at a home in the 8100 block of Wagner Road, about 12 miles away in rural Waterloo, stepped out for a smoke and found the baby in a car seat on their back porch, according to court records. Temperatures outside at the time were around 40 degrees. The residents who had no relation to the child or Halverson called 911. The child wasn't harmed and was reunited with the mother, police said. On Monday, officers found the stolen vehicle parked in town on North Hackett Road. Halverson was identified through surveillance video and found near the vehicle. He told police he wanted to apologize to the mother. He also retrieved keys to the vehicle from his neighbor's trash, where he tossed them and provided the keys to police court records state. Halverson has prior convictions for lascivious acts, with a child, assault with intent to commit sexual abuse from a 2004 incident where he entered an Evansdale home and rubbed up against a nine-year-old girl. He was also convicted of meth charges in 2015 incident where he approached a 15-year-old girl in Cedar Falls apartment building parking lot at 2 a.m. On January 7th, he allegedly stole a Chevrolet Impala from the parking lot of New Star Liquor Store on West 4th Street, less than a mile from the Dollar General, around 11.35 p.m. He was found driving the vehicle, which had license plates from another vehicle, on January 12th. He's currently awaiting trial for the incident. All right, let's go back to Des Moines. Midwest could add more ethanol to gas under plan. Gasoline with higher blends of ethanol could be sold year-round in eight Midwest states, beginning in 2024 under a rule proposed Wednesday by the EPA. The proposal, uh, or I should say the proposed rule, rather, is a victory for the biofuels industry, which for years has pushed to allow sales of gasoline blended with 15% ethanol during the summer, which hasn't been allowed because of concerns that it would worsen smog during hot weather. The industry and members of Congress welcomed the EPA's proposal, which had been requested by governors in the eight states, but they questioned why the new rules couldn't begin this summer. 
Under the proposal, the higher blends could be sold during the summer in Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Most gasoline sold in the U.S. is now blended with 10% ethanol, which is allowed throughout the year. The issue is, uh, is especially important in those Midwest states because farmers there grow the bulk of the nation's corn, and nearly 40% of that crop is used to produce ethanol. As more ethanol uh, goes into gas tanks, demand for corn should increase, and prices for the commodity paid to farmers should also go up. The American Coalition for Ethanol said in a statement that the group appreciated the EPA's proposal, but argued that there was no reason to wait until 2024. The group accused the agency of delaying the action because of pressure from the petroleum industry. The administration appears to be caving to reinforce to, to, to refine her crocodile tears by kicking the can to 2024 instead, the coalition said. This delay means consumers in conventional gasoline areas of the country will be forced to pay more at the pump this year, and retailers who want to offer lower costs of E15 to their customers will be penalized. The group urged the EPA to allow the change to take effect in 2023 for the eight Midwestern states and for the Biden administration to allow the expanded ethanol sales in other regions of the country. The EPA uh, responded that there wasn't time to change the fuel supply for this summer. There is simply not enough lead time prior to the summer of 2023. The fuel production and distribution system would have already had to begin making the transition to provide a new lower volatility gasoline by now in order to meet a May 1st, 2023 standard at the gasoline terminals, the EPA said in a statement. We, excuse me, I should say were EPA rather, to propose a summer 2023 effective date, it could lead to supply disruption. Okay, um, I'd like to remind you that you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. I am your reader here today, and I am reading The Courier, and today is the 2nd of March, and this is Thursday. Yes, we have a few obituary um Articles here, uh, there are three individuals who have passed. The first is Jim Adams. Jim passed at age of, at the age of 81, peacefully at home. Memorial services will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, March 4th, at Trinity American Lutheran Church, Waterloo, with visitation starting at 9 a.m. at the church. Memorials may be directed to Trinity American Lutheran Church, or the family dot condolences may be left at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Marjane Smith has passed uh, at the age. Well, actually, excuse me, I don't see <laughs> I don't see her age here, but she did pass on the 28th of February. Um, and she was born on the October 4th, 1942. Um, she and her husband had two children, Robin and Randy. They later divorced, and she married Russell Smith in 1972. And finally, Eldora Rose Seegers, age 95, of Marion, Iowa, died on March 1st, 2023, at the Meth Wick Care Facility due to colon cancer. 
And per her wishes, she's been cremated. A private burial will take place for the family to reunite Eldora with Merv. If you choose, please do, do donate to these places for Eldora's special granddaughter, Camp Courageous, Discovery Living, or to the rescue. The family would like to thank the entire staff at Methwick and St. Croix Hospice for the love and support that they showed Eldora while she was in their care. All right, let's go down now to the next article. It uh, This is in Elko, Nevada, and the headline says, Looming cuts to emergency SNAP benefits threaten food security. On a cold morning in an early February, Tammy King prepared and loaded boxes and bags of vegetables, fruits, milk, and frozen meat and snacks into cars lined up outside the Friends in Service Helping Food Pantry, known in rural northeastern Nevada as Fish. The beginning of the month is busy for the food pantry, King said, because people who receive benefits from the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP, come to stock up on free food that helps them stretch their monthly allotments. The food pantry, one of a few in the city of about 20,000 people, serves more families now than at any point in King's 20 years of working there, she said. In January, Fish provided food boxes to nearly 790 people. But King and other food bank managers fear that demand will spike further in March, when officials roll back pandemic-era increases to SNAP benefits. The program, administrated by the Department of Agriculture, provides monthly stipends to people with low incomes to spend on food. Before 2020, those payments averaged a little more than $200 and were hiked by a minimum of $95 during the pandemic. Officials estimate that families King works with will see a 30 to 40% decrease in SNAP payments as emergency allotments tied to the public health emergency halt in 32 states, including Nevada. Other states such as Georgia, Indiana, Montana, and South Dakota have already ended the emergency allotments. The, cut, the cuts to SNAP benefits will uniquely hurt people living in rural America, said Andrew Shane, managing director of the a public Policy for Grace, a nonprofit run by the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul, focused on r- reducing childhood hunger. A higher percentage of people depend on SNAP in rural areas compared with metro areas, and those areas already have higher rates of food insecurity and poverty. All right, look at some other uh, news here for the Cedar Valley Uh, area of Iowa. Man jumps into river running swift and high. Firefighter pulls man from Cedar River. A Waterloo firefighter pulled a man out of the swollen Cedar River near downtown Wednesday afternoon. Details weren't immediately available, but authorities said that the man jumped into the river, which is running swift and high with recent rain and snow melt from the area of the Mullen Avenue Bridge. The current carried the man downstream and firefighters and police officers raced to catch up to him. At some point, the man went under a log jam in the river and emerged out to the other side. And Battalion Chief Bill Beck with Waterloo Fire Rescue 
Rescue workers deployed an inflatable rapid deployment craft, which was battered around by the rough waters. Firefighters on board attempted to grab the man as he passed, but he was out of reach, Beck said. J.D. Van Dyke, an inspector for the fire department, heard the call in his radio and headed for the river. Downstream from the 11th Street Bridge, Van Dyke entered the river and snatched the man. Beck waded in, and, and the two pulled him ashore. Rescue workers performed CPR on the man on the recreational trail running next to the river. He was loaded into an ambulance and taken to a hospital. His condition was not available at this time. Van Dyke was examined at the scene and returned to duty after warming up. All right. Okay, what else is going on here? Here's another uh, article um, from Des Moines. House panel okays child labor bill. Democrats say that the bill eases protections on child labor. In Des Moines, Iowa teens could work longer hours and more jobs, including those formerly off-limits, as being hazardous and serve alcohol under a controversial bill advanced Wednesday by House Republicans. House Study Bill 134 passed out of the Full House Commerce uh, Committee on a party-line vote with Democrats opposed, clearing a Friday legislative deadline and making it eligible for a House floor vote. The legislation, among other provisions, would let teens as young as 14 to request a waiver from the directors of the state workforce and education agencies to work as apprentices in factories, in mines, in construction sites, warehouses, among others, as part of work-based learning programs. Granting a waiver would require adequate supervision, training, and safety precautions, and that the terms and conditions of the proposed employment not interfere with the health and well-being or schooling of the minor enrolled in the work-based learning program, registered apprenticeship or career and technical education program. House Republicans amended the bill by striking a provision that would have shielded businesses from civil liability if a youth worker is sickened, injured, or killed on the job. The provision drew national controversy, with critics saying that the proposal is dangerous and would subject child workers to hazardous environments and allow corporations already profiting from widespread use of illegal child labor to legalize their exploitation. New language states that the employers are only immune from civil liability. If a student participating in a work-based learning program is killed or injured, driving to or from the work site, and provides an exception if the student is acting within the scope of the student's employment at the direction of the business. The amendment also makes technical changes and clarifies that children as young as 14 may work in industrial freezers and meat cooler, uh, coolers, labeling, weighing, pricing, and stocking, provided that they are separate from where the meat is actually prepared. Children as young as 14 also would not be allowed to work around dry cleaning chemicals. 
At 15, they'd be able to work as lifeguards and swimming instructors, perform light assembly line work so long as they're away from the machinery, and after obtaining a waiver from the state officials, and load and unload up to 50 pounds of products from vehicles, um, and also shelves, store shelves with a waiver, depending on the strength and the ability of a 15-year-old. Republicans said that the bill would help businesses find workers in a tight labor market and to help young Iowans become more engaged in work. Committee Chair and Piosta Republican Representative Shannon Lundgren said that the bill will allow children to go out and explore new opportunities. Representative Dave Deo, Republican of Nevada, the bill's manager, argued concerns raised about putting children in harm's way were overblown and that the measure is aimed at updating an old law with reasonable standards reflective of current practice. We have a 16-year-old's welding at John Deere, Deho said. So this is the type of program we're currently doing. This law is not going to change that. It just broadens the language to make sure that all types of programs that we do right now for youth training are actually allowed and that it actually has the oversight through Iowa Workforce Development and the Iowa Department of Education. Iowa chapters of employer hobby groups representing small businesses, home builders, and hotels and restaurants back the proposals. Democrats and labor unions contend that the measures weaken child labor protections. Having it in the classroom create a more structured, safe environment than opening it up to work sites. Representative Megan Srinves, Democrat of Des Moines, said of allowing waivers for work-based learning programs. Srinvas, too, noted that the proposed changes also directly contradicts federal uh, federal labor law and questioned whether Iowa employers would be subject to fines. Federal rules prohibit 14- and 15-year-olds from working past 9 p.m. in the summer and 7 p.m. during the school year. The bill would extend that two hours to 11 p.m. and 9 p.m. respectively. Deo argued three states bordering Iowa have made similar changes and have yet to be fined. The proposal also would allow 16- and 17-year-olds to serve alcohol with written permission of a parent. Democrats objected to the provision and said no other states allow a 16-year-old to serve alcohol unsupervised. Maine allows workers 17 years or older to sell and serve alcoholic beverages when a person at least 21 years of age is present in a supervisory capacity. Okay, let's take a look now at some other uh, news here in the paper today. Um, We've got something here, bills restricting school library books advances. Bill requires teacher librarians to use only age-appropriate books. Iowa Republicans advanced bills on Wednesday that would restrict which materials are available in school libraries amid increased scrutiny from Republicans and conservative activists around material they consider to be explicit in schools. 
House lawmakers advanced House Study Bill 219 out of a subcommittee and committee, which would require teacher librarians to create a library program that contains only age-appropriate materials. The bill defines age-appropriate as suitable to particular ages and age groups and bars any items that can include description or visual depiction of a list of sex acts defined in Iowa law. The program would be set up by the school librarian, working with students and teachers and administrators and other staff and regular and regularly reviewed. The bill is part of a trend of increased scrutiny on school library materials, instruction, and parental involvement in education that Republicans have made a central focus this season. Last month, lawmakers held hearings with parents that advocated for removing books from school libraries and administrators asking about the processes for selecting and reconsidering library books. Public school advocacy groups said that they they had concerns with the bill, but they were more supportive of it than some other bills dealing with library books being considered this season. We really like this bill, as opposed to a lot of uh, the other pieces that we've seen, said Craig Patterson, a lobbyist for the Iowa Library Association. But some people told lawmakers that the broad exclusion of any sexual act from the definition of age appropriate in the bill would disqualify large swaths of classic literature that is often taught in high schools. Representative Sue Cahill, Democrat of Marshalltown, echoed, echoed those concerns and said that the bill could exclude books like To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm not for unleashing obscenities and pornography on our schools, Cahill said, but I do feel that there is some library value in some of the things that are in our libraries. Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican of Indianola, said that the bill sets out reasonable guidelines for which books are allowed in a school library. It's really important that we uh, move forward and we work together to make sure that we are putting things in our schools that are age appropriate, she says. LGBTQ bill advances also on Wednesday. The Senate Education Committee advanced Senate Study Bill 1145, a proposal from Governor Kim Reynolds that would put books removed from a school library for sexually explicit material on a statewide list. And students would need parents' permission to check out the books at all other schools in the state. The bill uh, hits on other Republican goals. It would ban instruction on gender identity and sexual activity in kindergarten through fifth grade, require schools to notify parents if a student expresses a different gender than their sex assigned at birth, and require parental permission to address a student by a different name and set of pronouns. Republicans said that the bill empowers parents to make decisions about their child's education, noting that the bill does not remove library books statewide, but instead requires a parent to sign off on their child reading certain books. This bill does not ban books, Senator Amy Sinclair, Republican of Allerton, said. It puts parents in the role of selecting what literature their child has access to. Books like The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, Me, 
Earl and the Dying Girl and Gender Queer have been successfully removed from schools in Iowa, according to Penn America. Democrats argued restricting the books was akin to taking away the rights for parents that want their children to read them. The statewide list imposes a burden on all school districts. If a small district decides to remove a book, Senator Herman Quirmbach, Democrat of Ames, goes on to say, the House Education Committee has advanced different portions of Reynolds' proposal as separate bills, including a, uh, including a ban on instruction around gender identity and sexual orientation and a requirement that a school notify parents before addressing students with a different name or set of pronouns that does not align with their sex at birth. Republican Senate Education Committee Chair Ken Rosenboom of Pella said that the chambers and the governors are working toward a unified proposal as they advance different legislation. We've tried to be aware of and responsive to the House wishes too, so that's why I feel positive about it, he said. Representative Schuyler Wheeler, Republican of Hull, who chairs the House Education Committee, said that he does not think there are not enough votes in the House for the portion of Reynolds' bill that sets up a statewide list of challenged books. They're taking that path. We're taking this path. We'll see how it aligns, he said. Okay, now here's an article I think that we can all say that we would agree with and, and would like to hear. Uh, this is from the Capital Notebook portion of the paper, and it says, Accelerated Income Tax Cuts Proposed. Well, here, here for that. In Des Moines, Iowa already is on a path to reducing the state income tax rate to 3.9% by 2026. That phase process would accelerate and the rate would be lowered to 2.5% by 2028 under legislation advanced Wednesday by state lawmakers. The proposal comes just a year after Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law a gradual reduction in working Iowan state income taxes, which started this year. Under that new law, all Iowa income taxpayers will have a 3.9% income tax rate in 2026. Senator, or I should say state senator, excuse me, Dan Dawson, Republican of Council Bluffs, on Wednesday unveiled his proposal to speed up that process and take the income tax rate even lower. Under his bill, Senate Study Bill 1126, Iowa would have a 4% state income tax rate in 2025, 3.55% in 2026, 2.95% in 2027, and 2.5% in 2028. From there, the bill says Iowa's income tax should be continually reduced until it's eliminated. We can't be complacent. We must continue to ensure we have a competitive tax code in the state, Dawson said Wednesday during a subcommittee hearing on the proposal. The current law is projected to eventually lead to a $1.8 billion reduction in state income tax collections, which means a reduction uh, to state revenues in that same amount. And that's roughly a quarter of Iowa's annual general fund state spending. Currently, the state income tax accounts for just less than half of Iowa's general fund budget. Dawson said that he's confident that if the state phased out the income tax, it would still have enough revenue to fund state government 
and all its programs and services. Senator Herman Kornbach, Democrat of Ames, who was on the panel, was much less confident that state government will be able to function properly if Dawson's bill becomes law. He said if the bill is enacted, eventually the state would have to make cuts to public education, public safety, and other services. This bill, the only thing that I can call it, is physical fentanyl. All it's going to do, it's going to kill Iowa faster, Kornbach said. Dawson and Senator Jason Schultz, Republican, uh, Schultzwig also supported advancing the bill to the full Senate Committee on Tax Policy. Well, of course, we all know about that um, that terrible um, uh, train uh, collision uh, that took place recently. And um, this article uh, is regarding what happened there in, uh, in Ohio. Um, senators are introducing a bill. Legislation is meant to provide more warning on hazardous cargo. In Columbus, Ohio, railroads like the one involved in last month's fiery crash and toxic chemicals release in Ohio would be subject to a series of new federal safety regulations under bipartisan legislation introduced Wednesday by the state's two U.S. senators. But even before Congress acts, regulators plan to step up inspections of the tracks that carry the most hazardous materials. The Railroad Safety Act of 2023, co-sponsored by U.S. Senators uh, Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, a Democrat and Republican, respectively, and four others of both parties, responds to the fiery February 3rd derailment of a Norfolk Southern freight train in East Palestine in Northeast Ohio, near the Pennsylvania border, where 38 cars derailed and several carrying hazardous materials burned. Meanwhile, Norfolk Southern Railroad said Wednesday that CEO Alan Shaw agreed to appear before the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works next Thursday. He's likely to face tough questions about whether the railroad has been investing enough in safety as it slashed jobs and streamlined operations in recent years to rely on fewer, longer trains. Shaw refused to testify before a Pennsylvania Senate committee and is now being subpoenaed to appear next week. The accident and its aftermath imperiled the village and nearby neighborhoods in both states. It prompted an evacuation of about half the town's roughly 5,000 residents, an ongoing multi-governmental emergency response, and lingering worries among nearby residents of a long-term health impacts. The administrator of the Federal Railroad Administrator, uh, Amit Bose, said Wednesday that his agency is going to focus on the inspections. It, uh, it does on routes that carry more of the dangerous chemicals and railroads routinely haul. Starting in East Palestine, federal inspectors checked out roughly 180,000 miles of track nationwide last year with a combination of automated inspection vehicles and human inspections. And that number is expected to increase this year with this program. I fully recognize this derailment continues to upend daily lives. The need of East Palestine and the rail safety needs of all committees is at the top of my mind, Bo said. The U.S. Department of Transportation will continue to use our tools to hold Norfolk Southern accountable for the derailment and to improve uh, freight rail safety across the country. And that does it here for the reading of The Courier 
for Thursday, March 2nd. I am your reader, Peter Welch, and you've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. I want to thank you for listening. Take care, everyone, and we'll talk again. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.